my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. Let me just run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Peter, thanks so much for joining me today. Uh, I, we have so much to jump into. I'm super excited about this. I know you know we've got to catch up at some events and stuff like that. We always have a lot to talk about. So I want to talk about. Uh, we'll start really big. We'll talk about like what the heck is going on with the deglobalization or decentralization, the rise of the global south, the BRICS. I want to talk about what's going on with the global homogeneity, the U.S. Treasury market. We'll talk about U.S. deficits. Uh, the debt ticking time bomb in a lot of areas. What the heck is going on with China? Recession fears here in the U.S. Even the real estate and potentially Airbnb bust that's coming. We got a lot to cover. Uh, but uh, Peter, yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for joining me. Of course, thanks for having me on, Mark. So, um, man, we got a lot to lot to discuss. We probably won't cover all that. So let's see what we can do. Uh, but you know, I, w- I wanted to start you know high level and then kind of drill down. Is kind of what I was thinking. And so, you know, one thing that, that kind of the, the the main theme that I follow on this uh, show is really this uh, decentralization agenda, this deglobalization. Mm-hmm. And and I talk about the cycles, this two hundred fifty year cycle, this pendulum that's swinging back from globalization to, to deglobalization. And you can really see it everywhere where we reach peak globalization with the WEF and the UN and the IMF and the BIS and et cetera, NATO. Uh, but now all that's breaking apart. We have the rise of the BRICS. Uh, they met uh, about two weeks ago. And to me, it seemed like it was sort of a nothing burger, but at, at the same time, it was massive. And the difference was the time frames that you're looking at it. But what's your uh, what was your take on that? Uh, I think the BRICS meeting was not as exciting as some people hoped. Uh, There was no movement really on dollarization. I think, you know, sort of the key there, the thing that people were looking out for was the possibility of BRICS doing some sort of gold-backed rail 
that would replace the U.S. dollar. That would not be their national currencies, right? Because, you know, China does not want a strong currency in the first place. Uh, most of the countries in BRICS are, I mean, they're just garbage in terms of currencies. You got Brazil in there, which has a heck of a history. You got Russia, which has had, uh, you know, over 100% inflation in the past decades. None of these countries want each other currencies. So India and Russia keep bickering because neither of them want to accept each other's trash. So the question on BRICS is not going to be their crappy currencies replacing the dollars. The question is going to be some kind of gold backed rail, presumably, you know, mostly managed by China because they got the money. And the idea would be that, you know, today, none of those countries use the dollar at home, right? They use the dollar as kind of this outside separate rail that they can do trade on. And so the idea would be that, say, China would back some kind of dollar replacement, and then they would do that so that they could suck uh, power away from the U.S., right? Because if, if there's some uh, cleanest dirty shirt in the world, right, if there's some option that's better than the U.S. dollar, then a lot of the U.S. dollar's sort of extra demand, okay, which, which holds its price up, a lot of that can um, sort of drain away. And, you know, if we kind of zoom out, the thing about the U.S. dollar is that it's really been the reserve currency for about 80 years now, uh, meaning that other countries... They use it for trade. They use it for investment. Uh, if you talk to a rich person in Mexico, he is not saving his millions in pesos. That would be insane. He's got a little bit of pesos for his month-to-month -month needs, and most of his assets are saved in dollars. That is true all over the world. And the end result is that there's about two to three times more dollars in existence than Americans actually need. Okay, all those extra dollars are floating around out there in the world. So if some kind of dollar replacement comes along, then people don't need those dollars. They sell them out in the market. Dollar starts getting weaker. That weakness scares, let's say, Japanese banks who are holding, you know, tens of billions of dollars. They sell those. All that stuff comes rushing back into the U.S. The only people in the world who are actually obligated to use the U.S. dollar, literally by law, is Americans. So if nobody in the world wants dollars, they all come flooding home. There are way too many as it is because we were the reserve currency for too long. That could lead to double-digit inflation here in the U.S. From China's perspective, they would love that because that would knock us out. Okay. Um, let's, let's, let's unpack that a little bit. So there's two things at play. First of all, yeah, there was all this talk of they're going to launch this gold back currency that, that, that got kind of, uh, you know, knocked off the table even before the event happened. So yep. like, I wasn't really expecting that. Right. Um, but there was a couple of things that I thought were important. So one during the event, they talked about, um, they, they urged the importance of each of these member states trading in their own currencies and outside of the dollar. That was one. Um, so talking about that, so you said that they all have these different currencies and none of them really want each other's currencies. Right. Um, but we see that they're trading in their own currencies. They're paying for oil and rupees, for example. They're paying for oil and yuan, et cetera. And I think about it like um, 
to your point, nobody's obligated to pay with anything other than us as taxpayers with dollars. But if I want to go to Chuck E. Cheese and I want to play games at Chuck E. Cheese, I have to get the Chuck E. Cheese token. Exactly. Right? Yep. I don't want the Chuck E. Cheese. I'm certainly not going to store my wealth in Chuck E. Cheese tokens. But if I want to go there and play the games, I have to have their token. And so right. if I want to do business with China or if I want to get commodities from Argentina or XYZ fill in the blank, they could say, hey, you need my currency to get my Chuck E. Cheese games. Right. Um, now the problem is, is then what happens with, so, so you have, you have currencies and then you have reserve assets. And so we might break the dollar down into both. So the dollar as the currency and the dollar, like the treasury market as the reserve asset. So, um, I mean, to, to, if, if we break those two apart, you have the reserve asset. Now, mm-hmm. uh, I want to talk about both separately, uh, but let's talk about the currencies for a minute. So couldn't they trade in their currencies, um, I guess they would just need a market then to take those trade imbalances and then stick them somewhere. Yeah, that's exactly like what they're doing with gold. Right. Yep. And the Chuck E. Cheese example is actually really good for understanding, um, you know, how currencies work in general. So the United States is a giant Chuck E. Cheese, and if you want to do stuff in the United States, you have to use Chuck E. Cheese tokens in the United States. You have to use U.S. dollar, and that's true everywhere in the world. Now the thing is that most money, like most money demand, right? Most of the reason that people are buying money, it's not to transact in it, it's to save in it, right? So savings are probably six or seven times more than the transactions themselves. And so when India, you know, is buying oil and rupees or something like that, yes, it takes some of the demand away from the dollar. But the thing is that both sides of that transaction so in the moment, if you take a snapshot when they're handing the rupees over for the you know, Saudi rials or whatever, in that moment, the dollar's not part of the you know, party. But as soon as that transaction settles, they're probably going to park most of that in U.S. dollars. Right? So the end result is that even though there's more and more trade but are, going... But are, but, are they, but, are they, but are they parking in U.S. treasuries, right? That, and that's their reserve. That's their right. savings. Yep, exactly. Right. Right. So, uh, so from from their perspective, a treasury is the same as a dollar. It's just got an interest rate on it. So, yeah, most of them are parked in U.S. treasuries. But I think about um, like my wife, she's sort of ridiculous in, in this way where she loves her like Starbucks uh, card and she loves to put money onto her Starbucks app. So when she goes to <laughs> Starbucks, she just shows her app and they, they credit. Starbucks right. has two billion dollars of float sitting in their gift cards. Right. Um, so, so people do store wealth in Starbucks, apparently. $2 billion of it, right? Um, yeah. And so it's sort of like a float because they know they're going to go to Starbucks and use that at some point. And it's not even a Starbucks token. It's just the dollar. But yet right. they'll still park it there. So it could be possible where I, hey, I'm going to do $2 billion of trade with India. I might as well just keep some rupees. Uh, yeah, without a doubt. I mean, there is going to be some of that. So the reason that you save um, sort of zooming out in the big picture is so that you can eventually engage in transactions, right? So so if a significant amount of the trade going on between, let's say, Saudi Arabia and China is going on in their own currencies, then yes, there will be some deterioration of U.S. dollar demand. But I don't think it's massive. So it, it's it, it's not like one-to-one. In other words, if 10% of their trade shifts out into each other's currencies, that doesn't, I think, imply a 10% drop in how many dollars they want because most of the dollars they want are kind of saved for we don't know what yet. Okay, so it, it's, it's just a store of value. It's not necessarily dedicated to any purpose. 
So yes, those will weaken the dollar. Uh, and you know, I think everybody pretty much expected that out of the out of the summit here. All of the countries in BRICS are trying to uh, extend how much trade they do. They're also trying to bring in new members. They've got something like 40 that are knocking on the door. And yes, that will drain some demand away from the dollar. I don't think it's an absolute game changer like gold might be. Uh, but you know, it looks like gold is a ways away. Now, the thing to keep in mind because the 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 dollar is a funny creature because it's the reserve currency. So in 2008, the global financial crisis that started in the U.S. Right, it started with you know risky mortgages and with banks that uh, took too many gambles. And even though it started in the U.S. and it spread all over the world, Europe and Asia, the U.S. dollar actually got stronger during the global financial crisis. And the reason is because if you are the reserve currency, you're seen as the safe haven, even if the problem is coming from your own country, from the perspective of the whole world, the U.S. dollar is still uh, seen as a safe haven. So on the one hand, BRICS could drag demand out of the dollar, which would weaken it. On the other hand, you know, if we look at the, the world, largely speaking, we've got near recession in the U.S., we've got outright recession in Europe, China is going through a rough patch. There's so many problems in the world that it would not at all be surprising to actually see the dollar get stronger even as that sort of structural demand is fading away because it's being replaced. So you have basically temporary demand is. because people are scared. Yeah, which it is. The dollar has been yep. uh, raging to uh, rampaging its way up right now. But if we go back to this sort of Chuck E. Cheese analogy, so um, we don't want money. What we want is the things that money buys us, the goods and services. Yep. We wait in money until we're ready to get those goods and services that we want. So back to the Chuck E. Cheese analogy, what we want is goods and services. Um, now, the U.S.'s main exports of we have goods and services, most of what we export is services, financial services, social media services. Putin said, what are you going to do, eat your social media stocks? Um, now, as far as goods, uh, the top three exports in goods are energy. Mm -hmm. uh, but if uh, with the addition of Saudi Arabia, Iran, uh, I think it's they're up to about 80% of the global energy market. Uh, oil, oil market, I should say. So, if these, if these BRICS nations, the Brazil, the Russia, the Saudi Arabia, etc., if they're the producers of goods, then w the world needs what they're producing versus what is the U.S. producing that anybody needs. Really, nothing. yeah, and that's a fundamental problem. Um, you know, our really across the West, they're chasing out manufacturing, they're chasing out energy. They're generally doing it in the name of the climate. And of course, they're just sending these overseas where they're often produced even dirtier. So none of it makes any sense. Uh, but it's crony. There's a lot of money at issue. So we're chasing out all of these sort of real industries. And, you know, we're, we're, we're essentially handing them to these other countries. Right? Germany is just deindustrializing it at, at, uh, you know, at a ridiculous pace all across Breakneck Europe. Breakneck speed, yeah. Yeah, they're they're buying out farmers and slaughtering cows, and so you are you are essentially handing the keys to your future to these other countries. Now, the thing is that the countries who it's being handed to are the countries who are not part of the Western gang, right? They're the kind of countries who don't listen to environmentalists or the rest of the activists. So, almost by definition, you're taking all of the real industries, basic materials, minerals, even food. And you are handing those to countries that sort of by definition don't like you. They're not part of your gang. 
And so this, you know, this kind of sets up a 1970s oil uh, crisis type situation, but completely across the board, right? Where every, you know, we're not there yet. We're going gradually. We're going as fast as the activists can push it. But we're gradually, all of these things are coming from countries that are actually hostile to you. If those countries are talking to each other, then you could conceivably have an OPEC-style coordination where they start squeezing the West. And, you know, the West does have things they want, like money. So, you know, they could, they could essentially make the West dance, even if the Western economies are much bigger on paper. They don't have those leverage points. A lot of countries in the world would dearly love for, say, Facebook to pull out either so they can promote a national champion or they don't frankly need it very much. Um, they might see a company like Facebook as a problem that, that it encourages activists or color revolutions and things like this. So from those countries' perspective, there's, there's very little leverage that you can throw back at them uh, if they do decide to use their control of basic materials and energy to squeeze us. Let me just run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. My dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure, I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be to be. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. So going back to we don't want money. We just want the things that money buys us. But we have to store that weight. We have to store our, our value in something where we can wait. And so the dollar, the treasury market has been that. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think, you know, we both agree, most, most everybody agrees that um, there's really no replacement for the U.S. Treasury market. We don't have the bond markets, the deep liquidity markets. We don't really have, even, even as much trust has been lost in the U.S. system, there's less trust in other places, et cetera. Yep. Uh, but it seems like what a lot of these BRICS nations have been doing is moving their um, Treasury buying into gold buying. Right. Yeah. And so that has been a trend that we've been seeing over the last couple of years. And so they, if, if they need to park their, their trade balances, their reserves in something, then, well, they have all these other assets. The dollar is the best. But maybe gold is also good as well. And it seems that that's, that's the trend. Right. Gold is good as well. Also hard materials. Uh, so, you know, what China's been yeah. doing is plowing a lot of money into Africa and it will, you know, what it gets on, on, on its end is that it might own a, you know, uh, oil, an, an oil field or a mine or something in these various countries. And so that's essentially a hard asset. It's not quite gold, but you put a bunch of those together and it serves the same purpose. And probably the biggest sort of own goal there uh, is that when Putin invaded Ukraine, the U.S. actually seized Russia, the, the sovereign dollars of the Russian Central Bank. And they did that to try to set off a bank crash. Now, ironically, our banks crashed instead for separate reasons. Um, but what that did was warned the entire world, right? It warned the other 200 countries in the world that the dollar is a very risky thing to own now because if the U.S. government decides that it, that it doesn't like your policy, then they will crash your economy. And now, if you're a country in Africa, let's say that you're kind of dodgy on the democracy front, the prospect that the U.S. could crash your banking system that does not mean that you're going to have embarrassing press conferences, okay? That could mean that you're hanging from a pole, all right? That's a very, very serious threat in some of these countries. And the U.S. just jumped right in. During the Cold War, you know, we had multiple hot wars going on, proxy wars going on with the Soviet Union all over the world. We never, ever did that because we were run by grown-ups who understand that you want to let or keep the entire earth dependent on you. Yes, even your enemies. So in this case, it, it's, you know, not only was it just blindingly stupid, but for me, it's an interesting input into the whole debate about the petrodollar and, you know, whether the U.S. is going to uh, run around uh, doing, uh, doing in world leaders who, who reject the dollar. They have been so incompetent at managing it. Uh, I, I don't know if they're too stupid or if they are so beholden to the activists that you know, the sort of Kissinger type real politic grownups in the room get ignored and they just do whatever the activists want. Um, you know, they've been throwing weight around recently. Japan had a big debate about LGBT policy. Uh, Uganda had a law that's very harsh on, uh, on LGBT community. And the U.S. has been pushing on that. They actually put sanctions on, on, on Uganda. They said, we're going to review your duty-free access because of this law. Right. And, and so that's an escalation here because it's one thing if your country's afraid to invade your neighbor because you think the U.S. will crash you. It's another thing if now that's starting to get into environmental, union, family, right? The typical African is not woke, <laughs> very much not yeah. woke. Uh, they're not into this kind of thing. Uganda cannot do that kind of policy. So at that point, for a lot of these, or Saudi Arabia or Indonesia, which is Muslim. So those countries are basically backed into a corner where, you know, they saw what the U.S. did to Russia. 
they who knows if they're coming from them they don't know what the rules are it's a lot like us on social media you know like day to day you have no idea what you're going to be censored for these countries have yeah. no idea what transgression is going to get the activists excited about them meanwhile you have china over here you know and china's deal when it comes to uh developing countries is they say we don't care what you do politically we want you to be rich because we want to buy stuff from you, like oil. We want you to have functioning oil fields and, uh, you know, uh, ports. And we also want you to buy Chinese things. All right, so we want you to be prosperous. And aside from that, I don't care what you do. Doesn't matter to me what you do with the environment, LGBT, etc. That package looks a heck of a lot more attractive to a lot of countries. And those countries collectively make up a huge amount of dollar demand. There was a um, Larry Summers... He gave a talk, and um, he was former uh, Clinton executive. I think he was Secretary of Treasury. Anyway, he was running around Africa, and he said that he talks to diplomats over there, and what they tell him is that when China comes, they come bringing a big checkbook, and they ask, what do you guys need, and here's what we want, and let's make a deal. When the U.S. comes, they come with a lecture. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, it's something that I've been observing, and and uh, I am certainly no ch China champion at all. Sometimes I get accused of that; uh, it's crazy. But um, I'm certainly not a fan of communism, nor am I a fan of China. But um, if you do look at it through the lens that you're talking about, it's like China is cooperative, um, and mm -hmm. the U.S. is coercive. Yeah, and it it bothers me because you know when you look back through you know World War One, World War Two, and you see the rise of the United States, and really coming to this you know, you know, point of American exceptionalism, and it really led through this industrialization and being able to supply the world. And we, we led by example. Yep. And today it's, it's coercion to, to the point that you've had where, where China seems to be cooperating. Now, do they have ulterior motives? And there's a whole bunch of other stuff to unpack there. But on the surface, you sort of see that. I want to just wind it back one, if we can, just a little bit, because you talked about the petrodollar. So um, after the whole world per the Bretton Woods Agreement was uh, tied to the dollar, Nixon ended that 71, 74, went into this petrodollar agreement, which basically ensured the Chuck E. Cheese token would have value because the whole world needed energy. And so we priced the whole world energy in dollars. Right. Yeah, right. we provided and, free. And so, and so, yeah. Yep. yep. And, and so then if, if, if oil is no longer in in dollars, then what does anybody need the dollars for? Because there's nothing in the Chuck E. Cheese store anymore. Now yep. there's lots of debt that's denominated in dollars that has to be paid back. And so this is something Brent Johnson and I have gone kind of round and round on where he's like, but you got to pay back the dollar denominated debt. Right. That has to be extinguished. Well, unless they don't want to pay it back anymore. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it's the old joke. Uh, you know, if you owe the bank a million dollars, you have a problem if you owe yeah. them uh, right. And there's some point where there's so much debt out there that if countries decide that they would like to collectively stiff the U.S., there's honestly um, not much you can do about that. You know, I think so. Well, you, you got you, yep. you you got you got uh, in uh, uh, an Austrian uh, potentially, yep. you know, ri rising to power in, in Argentina. Yeah. And he's pushing back big against the debt, wanting to restructure oh, yeah. what they have is debt, yeah. change that whole system. Uh, then you got Ukraine, which seems like there's no way they could win that war. Um, yeah. And the three largest debtors to the IMF are Ukraine, Argentina, <laughs> and Egypt. <laughs> right. So what happens if that debt just goes bad? Yeah. Which, well, which uh, could happen. Which could happen. Oh, yeah, it could for sure happen. And, you know, the, the IMF has this Baroque siphon that it's plugged into the taxpayer wallets. And so the IMF will do just fine. It'll just come straight out of us. They call it a, 
It's called a requisition. They basically send out notice that everybody has to give a certain amount of money, and you, the taxpayer, have to do that. Um, it's yeah. unclear to me why exactly we have to obey that, but anyway, uh, we do. Um, but yeah, the it, it, you know, I think that the petrol dollar thing. So my understanding of it, just in summary, is that the U.S. provided free mercenary services to Saudi and a number of other countries. Um, right. protecting them against Iran or whatever other interlopers, um, presumably actually protecting the Saudi family against its people because it was deeply unpopular for a long time. Uh, and in return, the deal was that they would, you know, when they sold oil, they would park the proceeds in dollars and then that would boost dollar demand. I don't think that's a huge amount of dollar demand. Um, I mean, just to grab a number at random, the, the like 5%. It, it's it's a relatively small amount of dollar demand. Uh, I think mostly the reason why people in the world use dollars for various things is because, first of all, the Federal Reserve is actually not that bad compared to other central banks. It's horrible compared to our ideal world, but in the grand universe of central banks, it's not that bad. It's about the same level as the EU, arguably Japan. Um, so for most of the world, that's attractive. It's certainly better than the Argentinian central bank. Um, and so it, and you know, so that's part of it. And the other part is just that there's kind of this installed base of the U S dollar from, you know, for a long time, the U S dollar was the only gold backed currency, uh, up until Nixon and everybody else kind of piggybacked on that. And so that gave the U S a really dominant position where everybody was using the dollar because the dollar was effectively gold, but it was a form of gold that was very, very cheap to transact. Okay, so when it comes to currencies, those transaction fees are a really big deal. You know, like, why can't world trade happen in Samoan, whatever the currency is of Samoan? Because it's not right. enough. Like, it would be enormously expensive no, to no try liquidity. to move. Yeah, 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 exactly, right. Uh, if you try to move a billion dollars in, you know, Samoan dollars, then, uh, you know, you're going to pay 30% transaction. I don't know. Um, and so the, right, the transaction fees are so low in the dollar that at this point, it's sort of running on fumes. Like, it's got that installed base, and that means it's a relatively liquid market. Now, eventually, that flips. Uh, something like, you know, gold rail would probably flip that a lot quicker. China is trying to essentially bribe countries off the dollar. Biden is, is really um, doing China's job for it by doing this, you know, this funny business with uh, the Russian Central Bank and then pushing Uganda around. Again, Uganda economically is is an inconsequential country. It doesn't account for much dollar demand, but there's a lot of countries in the world who look at Uganda. So countries like Brazil or Egypt or India who do hold a lot of dollars and they look at what happens. Yeah. So let's jump over to now, I think something you had talked about was um, Japan and China dumping dollars. Uh, you said, I think, at a, at a record pace. Yeah. So... Um, it looks like we have Japan, China, but not just them. I mean, potentially other countries, even Germany, dumping treasuries for any number of reasons, presumably to either one, prop up their currency or two, to buy energy. Um, so what, what's your what's your take on that? Yeah, so it's it's happening all over the world, but it's really most dramatic in Japan and China. And what's happening is that the gap between their interest rates and our interest rates Right, so we have pretty high interest rates right now. It's about five and a quarter. Uh, China's at three and a quarter. Japan actually still has negative interest rates, minus 0.1%. So that creates a big profit opportunity to move your money into the US. So you've got all of this money flowing into US assets. That is causing those currencies to plunge in value. So the Japanese yen is down. It's down about 7% in two months 
which is a really big move for the yen. Uh, it's actually down 40% since the pandemic began. Uh, China is hitting, I think it's 15 or 16 year lows that it just hit. Uh, they're, they're, they're really losing a massive amount. So this is a big problem politically in those countries because especially Japan, it imports essentially all raw materials, most notably it's gasoline, like 100% of the gasoline in Japan is imported. And so if the currency is getting too weak, then those prices jump and then households get upset and they put pressure on politicians to fix it. What happens at that point is the simplest way for a Japan or a China to try to fix the currency is to sell their U.S. dollar assets, which are overwhelmingly in U.S. treasuries. Okay, so they sell those, they flood out the dollars, and they use those to buy back their own currency. Okay, so if they do that, then that can reverse the slide, or at least it can hold the currency stable enough that they don't get political problems. But what that means is that Japan and China have been two of the biggest buyers of American federal debt. And the Fed right now is saying that it's going to be selling $60 billion, or it is actually selling $60 billion a month in U.S. treasuries. And so if the U.S. is selling, China is selling, Japan is selling, who the heck is buying? Right? And meanwhile, and the, you've and got Biden over gold. here. Yeah, exactly. Right. Bricks are buying gold. Countries all over the world are gradually uh, diversifying out of the dollar. So, you know, the yen and the euro have about doubled their market share uh, for official reserves uh, because of that Russia thing. So everybody in the world is essentially selling treasuries. And then you've got Joe Biden on the other side here ramping up the deficit. So we're looking at I think it's 1.6 at this point, 1.6 trillion a year. Yeah. And it's looking to get towards $2 trillion. The CBO, the Congressional Budget Office, which is like the in-house accountants for Congress, they to, and, and it's bipartisan. Uh, so they estimate that we're going to be looking at deficits of $2 trillion per year up until 2050. So who on earth is going to buy all that? Yeah, I just saw the last Treasury auction had record amount of over, you know, oversubscribed. I mean, they had more sure. demand than there was a, yep. available. I didn't get a chance to dig into the data to see to answer that question. Who is buying? Yep. If it's not Russia, right. if it's not Russia, it's not China, it's not Japan, it's not the BRICS. Who is it? I'm guessing it's uh, Switzerland, it's Europe, and it's the banks. Yeah, yeah, Switzerland, Europe, the banks. Um, partly is that flight to safety. You know, so enough things are going wrong in the world, especially with China now going down. You've got instability essentially in every major region of the world. So some of that is going to be kind of transitory uh, demand for dollars, which translates for the most part into U.S. treasuries. So I think in the near term, we're, we're, we're certainly not looking at any kind of collapse. But I think going down the line now, you know, as China and Japan drain out, as the Fed drains out, you've got this big overhang. And you may not see it immediately if there's enough fear in the world that people are going to that cleanest, dirty shirt. But I think that's setting up a lot of trouble for us down the line, especially since there appears to be absolutely no constraint on how much debt uh, both parties are united in pushing out. So I think we are looking at, you know, we all know it's unsustainable. And the question is, is that accelerating? Let me run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms.
Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. Is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, well, I think it certainly is accelerating. We saw uh, pre-pandemic, uh, the you know the budget was four point eight trillion, and now it's up to six point four trillion or something like that. And that so that new level has been baked in yep. uh, at the debt ceiling debate. They did not want yeah. to knock that down at all. And as a matter of fact, to your point, the CBO is just projected to get higher. I saw that the U.S. government spending is now greater than twenty five percent of U.S. GDP. Yeah. Um, so that fiscal spending makes up more than a quarter, which is past where we were in the two thousand eight Great Financial Crash. And we're not even in any type of economic downturn. Like this is like wartime deficits, exactly. and we haven't even we haven't even seen a recession yet. Right. And remember, there's state and local and county and all the rest of it. You put all that together, and it's about ten trillion. So it's over forty percent. It's almost half of what we produce gets taken by the government. And you're exactly right. That's that's during peacetime, and we are absolutely running wartime. Uh, style deficits, our deficit numbers look like what they were at the absolute worst of 2008. So the concern there is that if we get a recession coming on the pike here, you know, last time around we had what it was, I think it was two or three trillion uh, in 2008 that the, yeah, it was two trillion in 2008 and it was three trillion in 2020. Every time you have a recession, the deficit absolutely explodes because on the one hand, you have a lot of people who need help. they lost their jobs or you know they're having some other distress so social spending soars but then on the other hand tax revenue dries up because nobody's making any money so every single time you know it gets bigger and bigger so we're looking at probably i mean if i had to guess another 2 trillion uh, plus on the deficit uh, when the recession finally hits and you know the other issue i think is one of the most exciting things about recessions is that every single time the left comes up with some new innovation that's going to permanently grow the government. And I think the one, they sort of ran it on a trial basis during COVID. They are, I think, hell-bent on installing a UBI, a universal basic income. And I, I think it's very possible because of that, that this next recession could blow 2008 out of the water. It can even blow 2020 out of the water in terms of how much spending is ramped up because I think they're going to go all in on a UBI. That will give them the bread to go with the circus where they can you know, essentially pay millions of voters to sit on the uh, couch and, and give all the rest to them. 
Well, I think there's no question. I mean, there, there, there always is, but I think it's, a, in my view, uh, overwhelming probability that there, this next uh, recession is going to blow way past what we saw in the yep. pandemic. Uh, was it, uh, but fiscal and fiscal monetary was about $11 trillion. We'll probably be 15, 20, you know, yeah. in the next one, because, because the holes get bigger, they have to fill them up. But yep. back to the point that you said, talking about the UBI universal basic income, um, don't we already have that? I mean, we already have housing, we already have food, we already have wealth. Don't we already have UBI? In, in a sense, it's not, it's not called that, but we certainly have it. Yeah, for sure. Certainly in terms of how much money it costs, um, probably in terms of how much it disincentivizes work and, and just sort of, you know, making the correct choices in life. You know, like uh, designing a welfare program that uh, only gives single mothers money if they kick the man out of the house. What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly happen to a community subjected to such a rule? So they're really wrongheaded. And you know, in terms of money, absolutely, we already have a UBI. Um, and and this, you know, if we look at, at COVID, for example, I mean, they just laid it right on top. They didn't repeal anything whatsoever. Uh, the pitch that you'll often hear out of Washington from sort of the Mitt Romney types, the quote unquote centrists, is they'll actually push UBIs because they say, no, 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 we're we're going to take the current inefficient welfare system and we're going to replace that with this real simple one that's just no questions asked. And, you know, we can cut the paperwork and, you know, it's a lot more rational and all this. And we've actually been there. Uh, we already got baited and switched on that one. That was the EITC back in, I want to say the 70s or the 80s. Uh, the EITC, the earned income tax credit, that was sold as a negative income tax. And that was precisely the pitch. So it's like, okay, we're going to replace this ridiculous welfare system that breaks up families and, you know, puts people in poverty traps. We're going to replace that with this system now where you got to go get a job. Uh, if you make, you know, $1,000, then you get another 450 in taxes. It's a clever idea. It was, it was Milton Friedman came up with it. From an economics perspective, it's a very clever idea. From a political perspective, it's absolutely idiotic because they didn't, they didn't repeal a darn thing. So, right, that's the pitch that the centrist Republicans are going to come, are, are gonna come in with. The Democrats are going to try to bring them on board. The Democrats just want to buy votes. The centrist Republicans, I guess, want to get cushy jobs when they leave Congress, courtesy of their friends on the left. Either way, that's, I mean, that, that's kind of the unholy coalition that is forever victimizing us. But anyway, they're going to be at it. Um, you know, the Democrats don't listen to me. Some of the centrists I can sort of intimidate. So I'm, I'm definitely going to be going after for them because I'm certain that's exactly the game that they're going to pull. Yeah. Now, when you, when you look at, you know, the, the need for this UBI, et cetera, I mean, we kind of have like I was talking about earlier on an earlier segment of my show, just like the, the tale of two markets almost or two economies and two markets, really, where you have um, in the economy specifically, we have uh, really, really good signs. So strong earnings and strong revenues and strong consumer spending. Uh, but then we see dwindling savings and massive amounts of debt. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, right. We're starting to see delinquencies piling up and credit cards, auto loans, et cetera. And, and the, the markets are the same where the equity markets look really, really good. But the uh, the treasury markets, the bond markets are telling us troubles coming. So we see these tell two, two things. But I'm curious, you know, we see that we have this massive amount of uh, rising debt, both on the federal level. They've added about a trillion dollars in the last month or so, um, but also on the consumer level and not just consumer level, but also, you know, corporate level as well. And while it seems like most eyes are on the federal debt, the government debt, which is obviously exploding, right? I said the trillion dollars last month. Um, the reality is, is that they don't default because they have the money printer. 
Right. Um, it seems to me that the bigger problem is really in the private debt. And that's the sector that's probably going to blow up first. And they don't have a money printer to back that up. I'm curious on your thought on that. Uh, they rent their money printer to lobbyists. So yeah, depending on the industry, <laughs> they, they do have a money printer. Um, but we plebes definitely do not have a money printer. So we are on our own. We have to beg for our scraps and our, uh, our UBIs. Um, yeah, I think definitely the private debt is an issue. Currently, it's not biting as hard as you'd expect, uh, really for two reasons. One of them is that uh, during the pandemic, you know, there was a huge amount, about $3 trillion of excess savings. So they handed out all this money and people, people who were poor kind of used it up real fast, but a lot of the middle class saved it up. Um, I suspect your stimmy checks were saved. Mine certainly were. Uh, and so that's been running down. And so the Fed now estimates um, that that is going to run out uh, in another month or two. Uh, and then the other reason why it hasn't bitten uh, quite as hard as you'd expect is that a lot of those debts were incurred in absolutely historic lows in interest rates, right? So a lot of people are still driving cars where they've got 0% loans on them or mortgages where, you know, they cost 3%. So just because the rates come up, you don't, that doesn't hit all at once, right? You, you know, you sort of have this gradual person by person, their old debt is done, maybe it's paid off, or and and now now they're coming for new debt. So the problem guilt builds gradually, and that's part of the reason why there's typically about an 18-month delay between when the Fed hikes rates and when the economy actually hits. Companies have old cheap debt, uh, households have old cheap debt, and so that's going to get run through gradually. And where we are on that timeline, you know, the Fed started raising, I think, a little over a year ago. Uh, from roughly zero, but they rates didn't really hit a restrictive level, meaning um, you know the rates that that we saw before 2008 or before 2001. Pretty much before every recession, you get higher rates. In fact, that's what causes the recession. But anyway, we didn't hit those restrictive rates until like three or four months ago. So we're still very far away from when you would expect the recession to hit in full force. And, you know, that's why a lot of the debate right now is you've got the cheerleaders saying, no, no, this is Goldilocks. My God, you know, Sully landed the plane on the Hudson. Jay Powell is amazing. We're going to have the soft land. It is way too early to take victory laps. And in fact, given that it's so early, right, that we've only really had restrictive rates for a couple months, the fact that we're seeing bank collapses and you know we're seeing a lot of statistics like bankruptcies layoffs mass layoffs we're seeing a lot of statistics that are 2008 level and we are way early in the rate hikes to be seeing that so that's why i think uh when the recession comes i think it's gonna be pretty brutal yeah the question is when right and, and that's always, always. The thing. and one yep. thing the one thing that i just ha have to get I have to constantly check myself on is, you know, through the Austrian lens, <laughs> through a rational uh, lens, you can see this is unsustainable. Mm -hmm. um, I got caught, I got caught really hard in the 2008 great financial crash. And that's what really got me interested in macroeconomics and kind of drove me down that rabbit hole. Um, and, you know, I, I latched onto Mike Maloney and I became a gold bug and I'm watching Peter Schiff and Harry Dent. And, um, you know, then, you know, 2012, 13, 14 comes and like, I'm just waiting for another bank collapse. No, no, it's going to yeah. crash. It's worse. Right. They, they didn't fix it. It's only worse. Oh my gosh, this is horrible. Oh, now we have Obama. Now there's more spending. Like, oh, it's going to get worse. And, you know, 15, 16, 17, it's going to be another crash. 
and you know the Harry Dents and the and the Peter Schiff's they're the broken clock that will be eventually right. The, the that's thing the thing that I've right. said. That's the yep. thing that I've said to Harry Dent. You know, I've, I've had him on a couple of times. He spoke at my conference. I've read five of his books. I, I believe he's right. His his research is right. His assumption of thinking he can choose the time is what's been wrong. Yep. And and we we fail to see how many more potential tricks they have up their sleeve. So you mentioned mm -hmm. the banking crisis, for example, and. Uh, they they raised until they broke something. Now, Jerome Powell told us in a meeting that he would, the fear, he said the fear is not doing enough. He would rather go too far and break something because they have the tools to rebuild, right? And so they did. So they broke the banks. But the reality was they opened up some new three, four letter agency, PTFP, and saved the banks. Now, whatever, a bank or two went down. Consumers didn't really get affected, didn't miss a beat. And so what we saw during the pandemic is they opened up dozens of these three and four letter agencies and they were buying, I mean, you know, buying corporate bonds all the way through buying equities, you know, indirectly. And mm -hmm. so the question is then like, how many more of these are they willing to open and uh, how many, and they've already opened up, you know, unlimited swap lines with, you know, European countries, they've already set up these facilities. So I guess they could just keep pushing this out way further than any of us think is, is kind of the realization that I'm sort of coming to. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um, we know how the book ends from history, but we have no idea how each chapter ends. And I do think that there's a lot of chapters between here and the end. Um, I think they can keep it going for a long time. And, you know, so usually I am all in equities. In fact, usually I am in options and I'm overexposed to equities because uh, because I because I like risk. Um, equities are usually the way to go. <laughs> I mean, almost always equity will beat everything else. It'll beat treasuries. It'll beat gold. And the reason is because people forget an equity is a hard thing. Okay, like Apple. If you buy a share of Apple, uh, you, you know you know you're not buying um, a altcoin. I'll, I'll use the polite term. Uh, yeah. You are buying a company that has a brand, that has engineers, that has you know factories, that it has contracts with. I mean, equities are actually real. You can drop them on your foot. So no, I mean, in normal times, I'm a huge fan of equity. I think you know, buy like SPY, SPY, the ETF. It's got low fees. Just fire and forget. Don't even look at it for ten years at a time. You'll be absolutely fine. Now, in the moment, I am in gold just because. When you know they've hiked rates about uh, well the fastest rate in 50 years, uh, every school of economics it, it's not just Austrian it's Chicago it's even the Keynesian freaks uh, they all know that hiking rates that fast is going to crash the economy so at the moment I'm nervous but normally I am an absolute I'm like an equity bro. Let me just run this by my lawyer is a really helpful phrase to have in your back pocket. Legal Shield has been giving legal peace of mind for over 50 years. They connect you to a vetted law firm in your state for an affordable monthly fee. Want an experienced set of eyes on a contract's fine print? Or you finally want to get that will done? Legal Shield has a dedicated group of lawyers who have your back, no matter what the future brings. Sign up today at LegalShield.com forward slash iHeart. PPLSI does not provide legal representation or advice. See a plan for complete terms. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people in an unscripted, unvarnished way. 
is getting to to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine. And I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I love it. Um, and, you know, when we look at, you know, a lot of the indicators showing these recession fears, the one that people point to all the time is this yield curve inversion, yep. which has been right. It's accurate. It predicts yep. every single recession, but it doesn't tell you when. And so, like, the yield curve could even get more inverted than it is here. Yes. It could stay inverted for a really long time. And it's typically when it re-steepens, which is when really it comes. And so, like, could it stay inverted for another year? I mean, I guess it could, yeah. right? Yeah, I think without yeah. a doubt, um, you know, a lot of Wall Street operates on statistics. Like, they don't have much theory. So they got a bunch of, you know, Harvard, useless Harvard grads who sit around and just correlate crap. And so, I mean, they will correlate everything under the sun. There'll be like milk prices and, you know, dividends at uh, aerospace. Con I mean, they just correlate everything. And then something jumps yeah. out. They're like, snap, I got a correlation. They back test it. They do the statistical whatnot. That's really how they operate. They have no idea why anything is working the way it is. And, yeah. you know, in the case of an inverted yield curve, what it's really telling you, all the inverted yield curve is telling you is that the Fed is going to cut rates. That's it. Okay. Now, in the future. In the future, exactly. Uh, who knows how long in the future? I mean, generally, you know, the, the yield curve has a built-in estimate of when it thinks uh, that will occur. Okay, right, so... Which would be the 30, the 30, the 20, the 10, the 5, Bingo. Right? Exactly. Right. And so then at that point, you have to use theory, um, or at least understanding the world, and you have to say, okay, what kinds of scenarios does the Fed suddenly cut rates? And usually the answer to that is when a recession comes. And so then the Fed panic cuts because it, it, it you know, raised rates too much, it toppled the economy over the edge, and so now the Fed's trying to clean up its mess before anybody notices. So usually that's when they panic cut. In this case, it is weird because... Um, you know, rates or, or because inflation is so dominating what the Fed does that almost everything it does, whether it's going to have high rates or low rates, it actually doesn't have much to do with the economy. Jay Powell has been very open about that. He's basically been saying, you know, who, let whoever dies die. This is not my problem. My job is inflation. And the right. reason for that um, is because the Fed knows that inflation is how it gets fired, right? Inflation is the fundamental thing that the voters are going to uh, sort of grade it on. And that means that's the fundamental thing Congress is going to consider when people like Ron Paul try to agitate for more control over the Fed. So the Fed knows that, you know, it, it lives by the mercy of Congress. And the one thing that could really make it lose its independence, and this has been true through centuries of central banking, is that they screw up inflation. So that's why Powell cares about inflation. It's not because he cares about us. But his job is but to isn't make inflation. It, isn't it the dual mandate though? So it's it's inflation, stable prices, and full employment. So right. I mean, 
theory, uh, which is hard for them, uh, but in theory, would you rather have a job and income and more expensive prices right. or have no job or income and lower prices? I'd yeah. probably rather have income and higher prices. Yeah. Yeah. And, 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 so, and then there, so then there's a, there's a combination. So to, to the point of the Fed getting fired because the people are upset, like I would think the people are probably, uh, if unemployment goes from 3% to 6%, you put 5 million people out of work. Well, 5 million people out of 330 million, it's not too bad. Right. Uh, I'd rather keep the majority of people in work with little higher prices. Um, and so it seems like there's a combination of those two levers. There should be. I think the difference is that unemployment is, I mean, really, it's not unemployment, it's loss of income. Right. Uh, from from their perspective. And that you can right. fix with the stroke of a pen. I mean, we just got done fixing it in 2020. So what was that? I don't know, two trillion, whatever it was in stimmies. Uh, those are very, very easy to pass. Like Congress takes no damage passing a massive stimulus check. They fight over. But then we go back to the inflation, it. though. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Inflation. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So if the Fed screws up too badly and 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 that's you know, that's part of the reason why when Jay Powell gives his um, press conferences, he's always talking about slack in the job market. What he's basically saying is that I think that there are enough people with jobs that we can lose a couple million of them and we're not going to have political trouble with Congress. So he's using them as cannon fodder. And, you know, if that gets out of hand, then he loses too many. And we go back to the 1970s situation. That's really what he fears. On the one hand, you know, Congress would go to town uh, with stimulus checks. But that is really, you know, Powell is trying to sort of do that trade-off, uh, hence kind of the soft landing, right? His hope is that yeah. he can get inflation down, sacrificing just a couple of million workers, but not so many that it gets out of hand for him politically. So that's really the trade-off that he's going after. And that's why every single month he's just absolutely obsessed. How many jobs have we lost? It sounds kind of, you know, like he's a vulture, but I mean, that's, that's fundamentally what he's doing. He's, he's trading workers to get inflation down because he perceives that from a PR perspective, the inflation right now is more trouble for him than the workers are. Yeah. I want to jump to another uh, topic and see how much time we have left. But, um, you know, I have, uh, I started my career right out of high school buying bank owned repos and fixing and flipping. I've been involved heavily in real estate my whole career at this point now. Um, and so it's something I, I pay close, close attention to. Um, a lot of people are just, just, uh, forecasting absolute death and destruction in the real estate market. But for some reason, the market just doesn't go down, uh, for, for, well, for lots of reasons, which we yeah, know people right. locked in debt, et cetera. But, but people, I've, they're, they're, they're saying it's, you know, part of it, I think is that the general is always fighting the last war. So because yes. 2008 was a housing crisis, they think that we have to have another housing crisis. Um, I don't think that has to be, doesn't have to be that way. Um, and so a lot of people have been forecasting this. It hasn't come to pass yet. Now, sure. The sales number, are down, et cetera, but the prices have maintained. Um, but now, the over the last week or two, all the war drums are out banging on the table. The, the pin prick is here, and it's the Airbnb market. Uh, the Airbnb market's going to come crash it, and I think you were telling me that you just recently wrote a, a paper or, or did a video on that topic. So give me your breakdown of, I guess, the real estate market overall and then the Airbnb being a, a, a prick for that. Yeah, so I, I got a video coming out on the 10th, whenever that is. So uh, probably a couple days from so now. So sneak peek. Yes, sneak peek. yes, <laughs> it's a sneak peek. Yeah, I, it, housing has been funny. So when rates were so low, when all you know the big housing bubble uh, was going the past couple of years, I actually stretched and bought the maximum house that I possibly could because rates were obscene, right? They were sub 3%. That's like free money. 
And inflation at that point was going, what, 7%. So, you know, effectively, yeah. the Fed was paying you 4% to own a house. And what I figured is that, sure, it's a bubble, okay, but the bubble, you know, it'll go up, it'll start to come down, but then it meets inflation coming up to meet it, okay? So I figured that was a, actually a pretty good hedged trade, that inflation would essentially catch up with the prices. And we've seen that for over a century, that house prices almost perfectly track inflation. You get a little bonus if people are moving to Orlando and they're moving out of Chicago or something. But, you know, on, on certainly on a nationwide level, uh, houses are just a proxy for inflation. That is, by the way, if you're considering, uh, you know, gold or something, I mean, a house is a heck of a hedge, particularly since you can generally, not at the moment, but generally you can get uh, really cheap money from the Fed comes from the bank, but the bank, of course, gets it from the Fed. Um, so, you, you know, you are getting like, what? I think in our case, we effectively got about two thirds of our house for free, courtesy of the Federal Reserve, which I didn't ask for in my defense, but anyway, there we are. Okay, so I, I don't think it's guaranteed that housing is um, gonna the go other, down. The other thing just, to, the other thing just yeah. to throw out there, because yep. it's important, I think, for greater context is that what a lot of people miss about real estate, especially the Bitcoiners, um, is that, yeah, sure, the yields aren't that good, you know, depending on where you're at, your cap rate, 6%, 8%, whatever, like, that's pretty good. Uh, but to the point that you made, the leverage, the free money, so that's I'm it. getting to leverage a million dollar asset for 100 grand, for 10%, exactly. for example. Yep. Um, so you have the leverage. But what you also have is you have two other things. So one, you have uh, depreciation that they give you for tax write-offs. Yeah, yeah. And like, depending on where you're at with your income and your tax write-offs, that is a big deal. Um, and then, you know, potentially, historically, you have appreciation over the total asset, not what you've put into it. So there's really four ways that you earn on real estate. And so that's why, uh, you know, and, and then there's ways to shield your income in mm -hmm. real estate. So like you yep. could effectively pay no income tax if right. I have a good real estate strategy as well. And so uh, I think it's important to understand those metrics if you want to look at the real estate market as to what it's doing. But anyway, sorry, go, keep going. No, you're absolutely right. Normally, the regime only rewards miscreants. But in the case of housing, like for once, for one time in your life, the regime is actually giving you freebies. So, yeah, absolutely. I'm a massive um, fan of, of, of housing as an investment for all those reasons. Uh, Airbnb specifically. The story there is that the rates are coming down. You got a lot of people around the country who, you know, stretch to get that second mortgage to put up their Airbnb in Kissimmee or something for the Disney crowd. Nobody's showing up. And what happened there is really simple, which is just that during the pandemic, there was a temporary shortage in Airbnbs uh, because you know, pe people uh, might have had a second home outside of New York that they were renting out on Airbnb. All of a sudden, they won't be in New York anymore because of the zombie apocalypse. And so they went and occupied that and took it off the market. And then meanwhile, of course, you had hundreds of thousands of other New Yorkers who also wanted to get the heck out of Dodge. I mean, especially when yeah. they shut everything down, like the only reason you live in New York is because there's all this stuff to do, right? Like if everything's closed in New York, it is horrific. Like I would much rather be on some remote island, uh, you know, um, it's a horrible place. And so you had this perfect storm where all these Airbnbs were coming off the market. Uh, you had just this flood of people who were going out and trying to get them. And when they got them, they would stay there for like three months, six months, nine months. So all of it was off the market. And that meant that the Airbnb prices were absolutely astronomical. Uh, during the pandemic, we had to move from Canada to New Hampshire. 
And I mean, it was insane. You had like little cabins in the woods, hour and a half from anything, and they were like 2,500 a month. It was just, it, it was insane. Yeah. So people looked at that and they got excited and they said, holy moly, I can retire on my Airbnb. And so you had this flood of new supply. So all these people uh, financed their Airbnbs and the market was flooded. And so now all we're seeing, I think rates are down 13% year on year. That's not catastrophic. Um, but anyway, well, rates of what rates of what, uh, the returns that people are making on their Airbnb. So that's host revenue is down 13% year on year across Airbnb. That brings it to about 1200 a month. It's not terrible. I think the problem is that Dude, a lot I saw, of people were expecting I, I, I five. Saw, I saw yeah. a rate. I saw they were down about 3%. So I have to go back and look at the data that I saw on that. Uh, yeah, this um, is Bloomberg. So, okay. I'm not saying that's necessarily the truth, but anyway. <laughs> yeah. It's also, you know, of course, depending on the city. So, you know, uh, in yeah. some places I would, well, I mean, I don't know. But yeah, so a lot of the markets are down. So they're, so they're, so they're, saying, so they're saying as a whole, the median uh, income has dropped by 13%. Correct. Yeah. And that could be, for some people, could be a make or break number. That's the issue is if people went into it thinking that they were going to make five grand a month and they're actually only making 1200 a month, then did they get too much mortgage for it? I think also what's happening now, it's not just the revenue that's declining, the level of service that's expected has gone up a lot, which is a form of, you know, um, the customers getting a cheaper price is that they can demand more. So, you know, people expect... Uh, designer appliances, outdoor kitchens. They want the shampoo and the little soaps and, you know, the little towel arranged like a swan. So all of this is costing more time for people. So people might have thought that they were just going to do this little side gig. They were going to have the thing. They were going to pay, you know, whatever, <laughs> some local handyman to go square the place up and uh, take the sheets down. And, and now it turns out they have to put a lot more into it. So I think a lot of people are they're going to give up on it. Uh, they're going to decide all that work was not worth $1,200. You know, plus, you got to carry the mortgage. Uh, so I think a lot of people are going to exit from it. We're going to hear a lot of people talking about the Airbnb bust. Uh, fundamentally, I don't think that that's the kind of story that's going to take housing down. I think it's, it's a very sort of specific story to Airbnb, exactly what the process is. I think overwhelmingly for real estate, the question is simply going to be um, inflation. So I guess you're saying that... Uh, to, to your point, nine out of 10 businesses fail. Right. These guys were starting a business. Yep. And most people have no business starting a business. And yes. so they just typically fail. And these guys chose a particular business that got in at the wrong cycle, too yep. much supply, not enough demand. Right. Uh, they're going to go out of business. Um, that's just the way market cycles work. Um, but I guess the question that I'm trying to get to and see what you're deciphering here, but um, do you, a lot of people are saying that this is the apocalypse. This will be the prick that pops the real estate bubble. Are you saying you don't think that's the case? I don't think so at all. Um, I think okay. housing, just because it went up a lot doesn't mean it's necessarily going to go down a lot. Um, this is not how the world works. Um, <laughs> the, 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 the houses aren't, you know, remembering the good times and looking for payback. Okay, the houses don't care. Uh, the question is, what are the right. external dynamics that are driving those prices? And I think in this case, a huge part of it has been inflation. Housing is not massively overvalued comparing to what inflation did the past couple of years. I think you might be looking about a five, uh, uh, about a 10% overhang. That's not huge. Um, you know, it, it may lag inflation for a couple of years while that catches up. 
Uh, but at the same time, if we, you know, if we come into a recession, then where else are you going to park your money? Um, housing becomes even more attractive. Once we get into the recession, the Fed's going to cut rates again because that's what they do. Uh, at that point, a lot of people might decide to go out and buy a house, whereas right now they're scared off by 7.5% mortgages. So I think there's a lot of dynamics there. And certainly, I mean, first off, I don't think Airbnb can prick anything. Um, it's just not substantial enough. Um, and secondly, I think right, that... Right, it's not substantial enough. And it's decentralized yeah. enough. I mean, it's kind of yeah. all over the country. Right. Um, like you said, kiss, kiss me or whatever. Um, yeah, that, that's kind of the way that I would look at it as well. The other thing is I always like to ch get people to challenge these assumptions they have. So people are like, well, with rates as high as they are, then prices have to come down. I'm like, no, they don't. People no, just on the contrary. Yeah, well, and, would just and, buy a smaller house. Well, and also sellers are locked in is the issue at the moment. Right. So housing right. inventory, despite these high prices, housing inventory for sale is like half what it normally is. And the reason is because if the seller, right, he's sitting on a 3% mortgage right now. And if he sells, well, he's got to live somewhere. And so, you know, he, whatever, he's, he wants to move to Florida or something. Well, he's going to have to buy a house at seven and a half in Florida. Right. So a lot of people are effectively locked in. They don't necessarily like the house they're in for whatever reason. Maybe it's too big, it's too small, it's in the wrong place, whatever. But they're not selling right now because the rates are so high. They can't trade in the 3% mortgage. It's not like you can just take the 3% mortgage and say, okay, give me credit on this house. Alas, it doesn't work that way. Um, so yeah, on the contrary, the high rates I think are actually holding prices up because they're keeping people off the market. Yeah. Man, I think with that, we're going to break right there, man. We have covered so much ground. There was obviously more we could have covered, but I think that's good enough for now. Um, you're a wealth of information. I, I love it. I appreciate it. I know you make videos every day yes. um, on Twitter or on YouTube. Why don't you, why don't you shout that out? Uh, yeah, I post them every day on Twitter. Uh, they're about um, freedom and economics, so basically what's going on in the world. Uh, I'm an Austrian economist, so they're from that perspective. And then I also do them on a podcast, and I do a weekly uh, newsletter, like a Substack, where it goes into more depth. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you uh, taking the time to talk to us. It was uh, it was a fun conversation. Looking forward to hanging out with you in uh, Amsterdam here coming up Definitely. in a couple of weeks. Yep. Uh, and with that, we'll go ahead and sign it off. Thanks so much. All right, Mark. Pleasure. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bedeira. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to the one and only Ryan Seacrest. Love the connection to people. I think at the core, what I get excited about, what gets me up in the morning, is connecting with people. In an unscripted, unvarnished way. It's getting to, to say something to them, hear back from them, know that I'm part of the routine and I look forward to getting on the air. I look forward to it. In these exciting times, we're looking to the math, the strategy and analytics, and the magic, the creative spark more than ever. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. 
If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.